So what is, what is this thing, Brian? What is our dynamic here? What are we, uh, what are we kicking here? You, you've, you've got your thing. I got my thing. We, we work really hard. And then we sit down and do these little intros and outros. I don't know about your dynamic, but my dynamic is barely tolerating you. <laughs> That's fair. You and your totalitarian rules about what I can say, what I can do, where I go, how I live, you know, things like that. Uh, you are institutionalized by this podcast. I, I used to be free, and now I'm basically a Cuban refugee. I have great health care, uh, but all the rest of my freedoms are curtailed by you. I would say, if anything, a Dominican Republican refugee. Now listen, they're very free in the DR, so that no, doesn't really compare to the totalitarian regime that you have committed here. For those of you who don't know, Brian is actually uh, 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 not a resident, but a native of the Dominican Republic. I'm a quarter Dominican. Every, I'm a New Yorker. I'm a quarter Irish, quarter Dominican. We're, we're everything. Four we're or mutts. five other quarters. Yeah, we're mutts in New York. That's what we do. Cinematic community. Information overload. I might have to just run out of the room and leave a big Kool-Aid manhole on the wall. Cinematic, cinematic community. Tell people not to swing the mic around. <laughs> that's a good. That's, that's a good point. You know, I have no problem with you telling people that. That seems like an important safety tip. Just Welcome to Cinematic Community. I'm your host, Louis Normanden. With me is podcast and producer, co-host. Brian Hart and curmudgeon. Don't for, don't forget for curmudgeon <laughs> for sure. Oh man, uh, that's what we love about it. This week, Ted Hash, cinematographer, former gaffer, storyteller. My first gaffer, uh, Ted, has been absolutely fabulous over the years. Uh, we've done a lot of work together on the Bo uh, Bones, the TV show over uh, the last, what, four years or so. I've kept in touch with Ted ever since we worked together in Florida. There was a small gap where, uh, when I was in Louisiana, um, but when I moved to LA, we happened to cross paths and we've got some mutual friends. So I've always appreciated Ted's style, his perspective, and uh, his dedication and his grit. He just always seems to be the kind of guy making the right decision. Uh, if you guys caught episode four and five, we had Ted Hayash on as part of the panelist, uh, the, the Sarah Jones, the, uh, the Future of Set Safety um, uh, panel that we did with Vanessa Man Lunas and Danelle Hand. Ted was also part of that panel discussion. So uh, we're having him back um, for this episode of Cinematic Community. And as always, as with just, I feel like every one of our guests uh, have just brought a great level of professionalism to our conversations. And Ted, as one of my first premier A-list gaffers that I got to work for as a, as a kid, basically, on Monster, um, Ted's just been absolutely solid uh, for so long. I'm just happy to have him as a as as a colleague um so it's gonna be awesome when the podcast hosts bring that level of professionalism we'll get there one day <laughs> bit by bit a panel discussion with him and his cinematographer uh talking about the processes of transcendence it was awesome so i gotta go see it yeah for posterity they had some when i when i flew into it I went to, I was in Las Vegas last week working on a, uh, a Toby Keith, the show, Toby Keith's show opener and uh, Claudio Miranda was behind me. <laughs> I hear he can be a fire breather. The, I mean, he's a great guy. Yeah. Uh, 
friend of mine is a good friend of his and so dedicated yeah is the way i would put that yeah and super technologically oriented i mean he's yes. the guy that if you say how do we do this he'll he'll tell you yeah he did um it was a screening of uh benjamin buttons because i believe claudio moran shot that as well mm -hmm. this is around uh well this is around benjamin buttons when that came out but um uh, and my friend was at this screening and, uh, the projection, I guess was, you know, like a few points too green and Claudio came out like down the aisles and basically shut the screening down saying like, or basically there was a big, big commotion of some sort. The projector shut down and basically he, <laughs> right. he had okay, come we out have to and, start over. Yeah. Well, they didn't do it. They just, they, they re, they, um, uh, rescheduled the screening like, cause the projection wasn't right. And I heard that Claudio had a lot to do with that. I'm, I'm dedicated sure. to the craft. I'm sure. And perfection. Yeah. And which is, which is, there's a lot to be said for that. And it's also something that people can get caught up in. And if that's not what you want, sometimes it can keep you from doing what you are meant to do or it can keep you from uh, achieving whatever goal you have. Do you know, um, in simple terms, where you might draw that line? Like, Where's that, where does that lie? Like if you're, if you find yourself getting caught up, I, but you don't know you're getting caught up, how do you like, how do you myself? Yeah. I know that if, if I'm trying to do something because I'm can be really, I consider myself to be really skillful. And I know that when something is difficult, when it takes two tries and it doesn't work, it's time to change course. Fair. That, you know, from, um, and usually, and I mean that more in practical terms. Sure. So you make a suggestion to said director, whoever that is, and it's just not getting in there. And maybe you say it again because right. this is what you're trying Twice to push. Twice is enough. And then you just kind of like back off. Or, or if let's say we're trying to shoot on the street at night or we're trying to, there's some practical goal that we tried to achieve. And even if it's just as simple as, oh, let's put a light up there. And the second time it doesn't work correctly, uh, usually it's time to abandon that course and say, okay, let's go without the backlight because we don't need it here. Hmm. Interesting. That's scary words. Let's go without the backlight. <laughs> well, sometimes it's not worth it. Yeah. If it keeps you, sometimes it's worth getting enough shots. There you go. Than getting one perfect one. Unless there's enough money to go around that to make that happen. Okay. Or enough time or enough uh, resources. R resources is better to have the shots that you need to, to make something that they that can be cut together well than to have a couple perfect ones. Man, for, for gold gold per minute, I think you're getting up there with Haskell Wexler right now. <laughs> this is pretty good, Ted. <laughs> so um I mean I mean I've known you a long time, but we don't really talk about like where what each of us like what was our you know, what did you do before this life <laughs> began, you know? <laughs> um I guess uh, the first time we met uh, was on Monster. We met on the yeah on the I guess. Monster. Well, look at me guessing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, I know yeah. the first time we met was on Monster. <laughs> um, that was that was definitely my first chance to like take a crack with the big boys. You know, uh, Scotty Stewart. I'd done a bunch of jobs with the local best boy Scotty Stewart out of Florida at the time, and uh, and that was uh, it was I was still teaching at, at Full Sail when he said, you know, hey Lou, uh, oh you know you're you're you know, I, basically I told him I'm out there working. He's like, oh man, I could have used you on Fast and Furious too, and I'm like, oh man, I guess I better stop teaching then. So I <laughs> right. basically packed up and the first chance you gave me was when you guys showed up on Monster. Yeah, I remember you got, you and Ace, two, two really enthusiastic guys who 
whatever we asked for, you went and did right away. It was really, it was, that's, which is what we needed on that movie. Um, do you remember my license plate said five wire? Do you remember that? <laughs> no. It's true. <laughs> that's pretty good. I was pretty dedicated and kind of dorky in the like, yeah, I don't know. It's no, just that's, like, it's, that's actually, I, I think that's great. I mean, I, I yes. You should do it again. Uh, no. <laughs> But I was having a lot of fun at that time. Like I was, I was 22 at that time. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons I got into the, in, into the business is I wanted the adventure. Yeah. I didn't I, want to have to go to work in the same place every day and work as, as though it was a factory. I, when I was in high school, I worked for a week at the Dustbuster factory in Connecticut. And that's I just, just said, well, that's not something I want to do for the rest of my life. So you grew up in the Northeast. Yeah, I grew up in Connecticut. Yeah. And then I went to, uh, I spent a little bit of time at Clarkson University, which is an en- engineering school. It's one of the top engineering schools in the, and uh, if if I could tell the whole story, I went, I was not that thrilled with the environment and the people and the prospects of, as I said, look, uh, going to work in the same place every day and designing the uh, a fitting that might go to a brake part in the middle of Detroit and then and getting out after you know and working from you know 8 to 4 or what and then then what do you do with your life again, yeah. yeah so i said well i want some i want some adventure and i want some uh and there were two movies that were shown there they had a film club those are my that was my thing i that's the thing I discovered. And their first one was, um, the first one was, <laughs> uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> All right. And I'd never seen anything like that. We didn't have VCR. I mean, my parents didn't have cable. I grew up in a really, uh, isolated place. There were three TV channels and your bio is quite interesting. Yeah. I might add, um, I think on IMDb, it says, I mean, it kind of opens up. You grew up in a forest that, uh, surrounded by a forest, surrounded by a beautiful Northeastern light. It, well, if you I've just never me, seen that before, there's no, there's no other place where the light filters through the trees in the summertime or in the winter in the, in quite the same way. It's a, uh, it's, there's just something different and u- unique about it. I wanted to ask where you got your start, but I felt like with that kind of an intro, like you probably, it probably was inspired pretty early. Yeah, I, well, I was, um, I was always interested in photography and in high school I played in a band and we would take pictures and we did all kinds of things. We would go on road trips and take snapshots and say, oh, let's take a picture here. Let's take a picture here. And, and unfortunately those photographs are well lost, but there's, um, quite a f- that was my initial inspiration but then i ended up at engineering school and my pleasure was jesus christ superstar yeah <laughs> where i realized that you could do you could do things in films that you couldn't really do in any other medium you could have the the old and the new you could have the the uh, the uh the ancient context and then see some f16s fly overhead right i mean it's very you know now they would have just done a green screen sure but in the in the 80s and i'm in the 80s back then they didn't have that kind of technology of course there was the the star wars technology there were those this is getting it in the camera getting it right not only in the camera you're also giving it to the actors you're you're using the uh 
the actors will feel that change. They'll feel like they're there because there's a real background that they can see. And then you change it and the, and the real scene is then behind it. So when they turn and look, it's actually there. Yeah. There's something about that that's interesting. But now I think you would just do a green screen and you would, ju- you know, you depend on your actor to produce that for you. Sure. I guess I was just asking because it uh, just, you know, when, when you speak about like specific effects like that, you might have like also seen it other done other places where it caught your attention and really stuck uh, before green screen really became popular uh, and widespread use. There, there are certain, there's a, there was an, a movie with Gina Davis that uh, my friend Johnny Jensen shot where there's a trans, he did, a, he did this transition scene from when she, I can't remember the name of the film, but she, be, she gets pregnant and there's a transition through several months from when she's uh, showing, to, from when she's not showing to when she's showing and the camera pans into the mirror and then you see her, uh, just her body in the mirror. And of course the mirror is not a mirror. It is, it is a mirror image set that's built behind where the mirror on the wall would be. Got it. With, a, with the, the body double. So you see, you see her normal and then you see her, um, <laughs> then you see the, her pregnant self so in the transition mirror. of time as opposed exactly. to a transition of place. Ex- as- exactly, exactly. Good way to use that. Yeah, there. So there are a few. There are a few. There are a few. Cool. You might see some. Keep my eyes peeled after this conversation. I have we have some ideas with this other film that I might be making with a friend of mine. There might be an obscure Billy Bitzer bit that uh, (laughs) Billy Bitzer film that I just didn't see along the way. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I mean, Ted, you. uh, One of the reasons why we thought it appropriate to to ask you in here is because you 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 work for a lot of different people, um, like a lot of different studios, networks, things like that, music videos, commercials, feature films. Um, Where I've seen you a lot recently, uh, you know, on Bones, just day playing, like another day at the office, you know, uh, on Bones, just 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 you've been around long enough, you're just steadily doing your thing, Um, and as I had known you for years, uh, gaffing and gaffing on a world-class level. Um, so I guess my question is, how is it, uh, how is it as a day player, like you're just kind of bouncing around between the bigger jobs that are keeping you busy for a long time? Like, is it just the fact that you have a large network that you've been kind of building up and people just, just uh, you know, are you are asking your availability for two or three days and you're just kind of filling days until uh, the bigger, between the bigger jobs? Well, Back when I was working on Bones, I was also working on CSI Miami and doing where I would work on the double up days and I would work on the, um, on the second units and, uh, CSI Miami had an insert unit. And so we would do, so that was really a matter of people recommend you and then they, you go in for a day on CSI Miami. I didn't know anyone on the set but i'd been recommended by another friend of mine what's and, that like and that was <laughs> that was not the easiest experience but it, it took me they kept calling me back so yeah you must like the abuse yeah <laughs> and when, some of those people some of those people now are great friends of mine when you go into these uh situations where you don't know anybody and the tensions are high because you're dealing with these high profile talents high profile shows a lot of money being spent every minute every hour how do you deal with uh, not knowing anybody? Like I imagine CSI to be up there with like, you know, the high tensions that you'd get on 24 um, where they just consistently go through personnel 
that, you know, can't cut the mustard for one reason or another. I feel like, how do you handle going into those situations? Me personally? Yeah. Personally, I, I, take a sort of, sort of, I take a sort of observational approach. I'll come in and I'll say, okay, what is, okay, I see what that person's doing. I see what that person's doing. And, and then I'll just start talking to them and I'll start, and I'll try to find the one person that I can get close to. I mean, I usually, I'm a, you know, when, in those situations, I'm a department head. So there's always the, the DP when I was scaffing, that was, there's the DP. So it's really about, um, having a discussion with them right away right. and say, well, how, how do you want to do this? How do you want to do that? Which, which we do here. And then, and then go and look for the resources to do that. And usually on those TV shows, things are much more planned out than, uh, than you would expect. Do you find yourself actually getting to go on the scouts and things like that? So you know what to expect to some level? Um, well at that, on those shows, no, but there's a whole mechanism where there's, where you have, uh, you have the production scouts ahead of time while they're shooting one episode, they're scouting the next episode and the best boys. And sometimes, uh, say CSI Miami, they were, uh, they had alternating DPs. So the DP would scout. And so between the DP, the, the gaffer, the best boys, the key grip, the, uh, and the, the first assistant, they would plan out what every, every, everything one was going to do and what resources you needed. And so for me, in a way it was great because I could show up and, Oh, these are the reasons, this is what I have. Okay. Let's make this work. Yeah. And that really was, I think why I would get called back because whatever you gave me, I made it work. Right. That's uh, that's a good approach. And also I feel like, you know, when you walk into these situations, learning names is a pretty big, important part of that. Yeah, absolutely. That's the first thing you want to do is just address and just keep addressing them by their names so that they can, you know, when you walk onto a set, you can easily, you know, you'll get people to know who you are and you'll get to know who they are fast. If you just, and you want to be, just be nice. Yeah. That's, that's part of it too. That's really the whole thing. Just if, if I walk in there and I'm nice to people, they'll be nice to me. They'll help if I, if I help them, they'll help me. And it's really, actually, it was fairly, after a while, it was very easy to sort of fit in. I feel like it's a common mis, mis, uh, misnomer that when you walk onto a Hollywood set, you're just going to deal with a bunch of jerks. That was what I thought when I was first getting into this business, and then I met Steve Campbell. Right. Super nice guy. One, one of the nicest. And what I learned, came to learn is that the people that I like best in this business are the ones that are really good at their job, but so down to earth. Right. And that, that's Steve Campbell. He's an, he's an amazing operator and the nicest guy you want to meet. Steve, oper uh, Steve operated for you, uh, with you uh, on Monster, right? Yeah, he, yeah he, he, was has, a, he was the A camera operator on Monster. Yeah, he's awesome. Not to say that there aren't jerks in the business who are here to try and rape and kill you. <laughs> Well, certainly there are people. I don't want to forget who, them. Give them a shout yeah, out. Let's not leave them out. Well, it, it's usually those kind of people who get the who might get the attention because just like the new the evening news, sometimes you have something that is the going to be really interesting, or it's now become social media. It's now the 
11 most amazing things that happened today and you'll never believe what happened next. Right. <laughs> Which has become the norm on, on social media. And so it's just our nature to, to be attracted to that. But then, but most of the sets in Hollywood, people are nice. Yeah. At least the ones that are running the pro sets, you know, and, and, it, and it's, it's a, it's a wide smattering of personalities you get to deal with every personality under the sun and not everybody's going to be pleasant. But I find that there's a camaraderie that goes along with this. There's a, uh, as I mentioned in another podcast, trauma bond that, that goes along with this. You know, you stick it out with someone for, for, for 60, 80 hours a week. Well, you're going to find some common ground and well, you you might actually get to be their friend afterwards. You know, like that's how it goes. That, that was when I was working on movies Years ago, that was the thing. It was it okay? Now I'm when I'm done, I have a hundred new best friends. Are you doing mostly television now? I, I'm I'm doing all kinds of different things. So, television, movies, commercials. What do you think some of the differences are, other than the long form, short form version of telling these stories? What What are some of the differences that you're that you've come to know? Well, the television you have to you have to have an economy. You have to say, okay, what are what are the shots that I need to make this scene work? And the knowing that that if we're not going to see, even though the character that character is coming in through the door, we better do it in a way so that when they land here, it's useful because otherwise, it's not going to be on TV. So proper blocking, it, it, blocking is important because the and camera blocking and being able to make one shot work. And being able to make two cameras work at the same time. That's and the trick I've come to find with uh, any major network show, you know, any single camera format, okay, which usually will have two or more cameras, that you are, uh, you are blocking everything out so that th the shot doesn't get boring and the dialogue is d delivered and they can deliver it in any way that makes sense in whatever uh, set, uh, whatever set they're in. And you have to figure out a way to do it efficiently. And you have to figure out a way to make it interesting. I, I think that, and I find that the actors on TV shows are a lot more open to changing the blocking without them and then telling them afterwards that that sometimes, that on many shows that's okay with them, that they'll come in and say, oh, I, you mo we moved your mark over here. Okay, good. They're okay with that. And on movies, that might not necessarily be the case because... They're, they may have decided ahead of time, I need to be at the window. I need to look out the window. Or the director might have a, an idea that, well, I need to look out the window and I want to see them front, you know, from the front so I see that expression. And, and I'm going to stay on that close-up for a long time with nothing happening. Right. And because they have the freedom of, if my movie's 90 minutes, 110 minutes, 120 minutes, it is what it is. It, they're not stuck with that 22 minutes of for a half hour show. It has to fit in there. Right. So, it's always the director and script supervisor with a stopwatch right, right next to right. monitor. And knowing that the, well, the, the shoe leather is going to be cut out. So why shoot it? Right. Um, on some shows, they, they end up with insert units. Bones, did you ever do an insert unit on Bones? Oh, yeah. All, all the time. Yeah. It's just, just inserts. You know, like we have a day where... Uh, the uh, uh, editor, um, the um, editing supervisor, yeah, the post production supervisor will go in and run a unit that is just to do inserts. So they'll pick up in one day's shooting uh, episodes, uh, inserts for five different episodes. 
so they can just wrap up one day's of shooting as so that they're not wasting the first unit's time when they get when they get on set to shoot an insert of of something that's two inches big. Uh, it's just one way to go about that. I mean, it, it was it's interesting because at the same time, uh, while I was working on that, I was uh, on CSI Miami, and they had a full time insert unit. And if you if you've never seen the show, there is often large parts of scenes that explain how something happens in those inserts. They might follow a the camera might follow a burning fuse up to a pool of gasoline, which then ignites, which then starts the car on fire, which then fires some gun, which then, and all of that in Rube Goldberg machine of some sort, 10 seconds, yeah, which shows you how, or what, how, what happened or what might've happened. And so the whole show is tied to these inserts. If you, if they don't shoot those, they have no show. Right. Let me ask you something real quick. Um, when you were talking about moving actors, marks, and you know, changing the blocking, we were talking about blocking here a second ago. Who is it that's who is it in your in your experience? Who is it that's there changing those marks and making that happen? Is that the director, DP, the operators? Well, when I say changing marks, we might just uh, because there's not necessarily the director and the actors on television, because there's, there's time constraints to the day and you might bring them in, say before they've changed their clothes or before their hair and makeup have been completed and you bring them in and you want to send them back as quickly as possible. So you might get it down to the point where you say, okay, there's enough time to get them from the door into the room, get them to stand here and look at these two uh, places, put marks down and then send them away and then work the DP will work through with the director and, and move those marks around. And the DP might come in with the viewfinder and the stand-ins and just have them stand in exactly where, where they were and, and really good stand-ins. Often they'll know the lines. They'll know the, uh, where people were, when I've seen stand-ins often take notes as to exactly when, the actor did this and then they'll, we'll just kind of tweak it. We'll just sort of move people around and say, okay, let's, let's move her mark over a little bit so that we can see into the next room so that that person, when she's delivering her line is on camera. It's about getting everything on camera and making the, the shots work in an economical way. It's not a lot different than movies, but I think that, that cer- certain movies you wouldn't, sometimes you don't even put marks down. Yeah, depending on who, uh, how the flow will work, whether it's the director or the actors uh, that maybe don't prefer it, or you're in a situation where you can't put marks down. I mean, on on Decoding Annie Parker, the often we wouldn't see a rehearsal. Yeah, there's that too. Um, where I was leading, in, leading into it earlier was about the operators being the ones that are over there um, on the on the scene, making it happen when the DP or uh, maybe has to step away or manage the director um, and the dire- or the director, you know, directors have different styles. Um, I've seen some very talented operators that are there. They never leave set. They're watching what's going on to make sure that uh, when the director goes through in his rehearsals and, you know, it, it they, they, you know, turn it into a public rehearsal. Everybody comes and watch, watches the rehearsal. You know, they lay some temporary marks and, you know, the director's going through with a viewfinder 
And you little plan a little sign like, okay, we're on a 32 right here. But over here in this position, you know, we need to be uh, either a little wider on the zoom, but we need to be about this height. And so the camera operators, you know, everybody clears set when they send the actors away. And then the operators are there, you know, making things happen. You know, the physicalities of organizing the dolly, uh, the dolly track or the, the dance floor to make sure that they can get their camera where the director wants it. I mean, well, especially in television, there's always the negotiation between the two cameras as to where where can my dolly be and where can your dolly be and should this camera be on the sliders? Often, you can get the cameras closer together if you put if you put one on a slider because you can you can get out beyond the where the dolly is. But then, I mean, invariably, we all, almost always will put down dance floor and figure out where. Uh, just to have super flexible uh, camera positions, and a lot of times, and it, it really depends on the operator. Some some operators are really strong, and they they can see it. I've worked with some operators who are really uh, they're you know they'll say, oh, I if if I'm here, then you can get the B camera there. Like they really know, and so you, it's very. It makes it e- your job easier because here you are trying to uh, manage all kinds of things, and here you have a great operator who's who's able to help with that. I think these are really operators who are about to become DPs, who are really strong, and they see what it is you're trying to do, and they see the blocking, and they and they are able to see not just what their camera is doing, but what. The other cameras are doing or or the fact that you're tr- maybe trying to get a backlight in or you're trying to not see the windows because you don't have much money and you can't build up the fill light inside and you don't want them to blow out or they so they very easily will key into that so really really what you were interested in was how how does the operator, especially in television, help the DP? And, and really it's about, yes, it's about framing the shot and and making sure that it's executed properly, but it also in setting it up, it's really important for the operator to be looking for more than just how can I make my shot? Correct. They're- how can I make how can I make everyone's shot? How can I facilitate not only getting th- what I've been assigned to do, but can I add to it? Can I, uh, can I see what I'm supposed to see and can I, uh, position my dolly in a way that the other camera can get in here? Can I, do I need to be on the slider? Should I give my slider to the other camera so that they can get closer to to my camera? Can I get mine right up next to it? Can I, which zoom should I be on? Sometimes, uh, sometimes in television we might carry four different zooms and it might be better to have the small lightweight compact zooms in a small room where we're using two cameras and they have to be really close together it might be better to have two two of the small ones and not the 24 to 290 the the 11 to 1 or the 12 to 1 that gives us every range but is too big to get in the hole. Yeah, and it's four times, you know, at these days, it's almost twice as big as the cameras. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, it's funny to see, like, big 12-to-1s mounted to super small camera bodies these days right. with no or, mag on the top. Or even sillier, something, I've seen a 12-to-1 on the back with a, a Canon 5D on the back of it. 
I didn't want to say it, but yeah, that's what I've I was thinking. I've seen it. Yeah, it's, I've seen it too. And then at that point, the rails and everything's mounted to the lens, and the body just like hangs. Exactly. <laughs> Basically, you you put you put the lens on the tripod, and you mount the camera on the back of it. Yeah. Um, I and another thing that I find that really talented operators are doing is that they're foreseeing problems that are to to come. Um, they're they're make you know they have enough knowledge of what everybody else should be doing so that they know how to best facilitate. Uh, a speedy process in the setup of the shot so that they can be executed properly and get on to the next shot. Well, and the other thing is they're, they're also going to be thinking about the coverage. And right. How am Following I going to be able to sides. get in the right... Am I, when we do turn around, how am I going to get to the other side? Is, it, is this going to work? What are we going to do when we get over there? Are we going to make, make this? And, and really that's something that the DP and the director should be thinking in about. In the blocking. Exactly in the in the blocking, but you want your operator to be able to say, "Well, am I going to be able to get over there?" And then the DP might decide to just just rotate everything just a little bit so that so that you can facilitate the uh, the other camera. Or and a lot of t- I mean, the reality is now a lot of times what we're being asked to do in television is to cross shoot. Normally, the way I mean, the way I was brought up was we would, if we use two cameras, we would always try to keep them as close together as possible. Now you might have two cameras, 180 degrees from each other, shooting where two people are talking to each other, and we're getting a two shot of each, a two shot from both perspectives, and a close up, say with a second pass, from the same position, and that might be the all all the coverage that we shoot. With your extensive extensive experience in gaffing, I'm actually placing these lights to facilitate operator shots for operators, directors, and DPs. What are some of the things you can, when you go into that situation of going from shooting one side to the other versus shooting simultaneously at 180 degree axis? What are some of the things that you can you can try and keep in mind so that you don't bone yourself when you get into those situations? Well, it often only I mean. Pretty much you can make anything work, but you just have to be cognizant of how much am I moving the camera and how much do I, can I make the backlight for the one person into the key light for the other person? That's something that's often something we'll try to do, or maybe the backlight for, for one person might be the fill light for the other person. And so we try to think along those lines as to how to, how to facilitate using a few lights to do more than one job. Yeah, getting a light to do work for multiple purposes for your su- different subjects. And this is often better done in the studio. It's or or what often happens is we'll go in and we'll create a studio like environment on location. Say we'll take and this doesn't necessarily the old way to do it was we would go in and put a pipe grid on the ceiling and hang uh, quite a few lights now we might do it with two Max Menace arms where we just we can boom out the lights and give the director the freedom to to bring the actor from the kitchen to sit down in the restaurant, have the other camera waiting when the actor's sitting down, the other camera's dollying in and you're uh, and everybody's sort of perfectly backlit and and uh there's not a mark on the ceiling for because we've done everything by booming out the lights. Everything from a special stand that lets us 
put the lights in the middle of the air somewhere yeah. and shoot underneath. Menace arms and ratchet straps and all sorts of exciting grip gear. Well, really, now the there's, I mean, to talk about a piece of equipment, there's a great piece of equipment that has its built purpose built for that. It goes out 16 feet and you can put 80, 60, 80 pounds on it and you can get... Uh, made by Matthews by any chance? Made by Matthews. Is yeah. it really? <laughs> yeah. Just, just, just throwing that out there. was a guess. Yeah. yeah, the Max Menace arm is... is Super useful. Is that the one that has the like the crank and it cranks as yes. it goes? Yeah, I haven't yeah. seen those in a while, but yeah. And it's, I mean, that's a terrific thing. You, you uh, night exterior. We'll, we might backlight the background with a condor lift, but since we can't get the uh, the that lift is not easily moved. Well, in the we might just do the foreground with the with a Max Menace arm, much more controllable, and then. Uh, so we can just backlight the background, then backlight the people in the foreground. We do that anywhere with that with that Max Menace arm. We can put it, say, right next to the camera and arm out a backlight, and it's really quick and easy. Again, the scary notion of going without a backlight. Well, if you you know if if the scene warrants it, if the if the I mean if the emotion of the scene allows you to not backlight it, I mean certainly you're not going to not backlight a, Don't a force morning. It. Yeah, I know I get it. Yeah, for sure. But it's uh um it's just something to think about as you, as as a young guy like me is out there, you know, just like, you know, monitoring and having to deal with these situations like, you know, what what am I going up against and how can I in how can I easily make sure that I'm creating layers in a two-dimensional object whenever I'm coming up with stuff? It's like, you know, backlight is a is a great safe place to start. So, it, I mean, in a, in a way sometimes it, it's if you can pick one light that might be what you want is the backlight because nowadays when the cameras are so sensitive and the lenses are can be we can use the lenses wide open it's very easy to just put up one backlight the light stays off the wall it'll sometimes one actor will be lit off the other one that Mm -hmm. that backlight will come um come through yeah bounce off the other actor's shirt and light their face yeah, i was gonna say yeah then you get a and little then, return right yeah. you, get a, you get that little return sometimes that's all you need and you just say okay let's go with it yeah i got one more question that i want to ask well one more that i'm going to ask i guess before <laughs> i try and pull myself out of this uh this rabbit hole when you're shooting two camera coverage of the same uh of, you know because traditionally we would shoot, uh, you know, shoot your wide, then move in, you know, get pick off your shots. Let's say you've now moved into coverage and on one side, you haven't necessarily turned around. Very traditional. Will you often take and shoot your wider lens on as the inside camera and your longer lens as the outside camera or vice versa to keep one in more in the eye line? Well, we like to have the close-up more in the eye line if possible that's 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 the ideal and then the other camera from outside but sometimes you can't get that camera into a position where it's useful maybe you'll go for a a three-quarter over the kind of an over the shoulder shot or you'll go for a a three-quarter side angle or a low angle that that lets you get an interesting additional angle so even if maybe we're going to use two cameras and we know, let's say, two people in a diner sitting in a booth facing each other. We might not want to cross shoot that because the booths, the backs of the booths are too high and you're not going to see past that. So maybe we'll cheat that a little bit. We want to cheat one person up and have the other person in the, uh, 
and so that we can see past them. So maybe I don't want to put the other camera over to get on the other side, or I don't want to do two cameras. Maybe so. Maybe we'll we'll just do an interesting low angle coming off the table with some foreground there, and we'll use a slider, and we'll just be moving past there. And um, so it can really add a lot to have two cameras and not think of it as on, only covering the dialogue. Absolutely. Make it work. I find some of the best operators um, are also out there consistently, like C camera operators on a TV show that like some, some shows, uh, like I did Wonder Woman a couple of years back, three cameras consistently. And um, the, that C operator was always looking for another shot. And then, and sometimes, you know, like, and I feel like that's, that's how you are doing your job right. Like if you're an operator and you don't necessarily have a shot, well, always, even if you aren't suggesting them, always be prepared so that when somebody says, well, what do you got? Well, maybe I can do this and this and this. And I think that's what. I mean, even better, it, let's say you haven't been given an assignment and, uh, but your cam- your camera is there. Maybe you want to show something. I mean, this of course depends on the environment and who you're working with. And some directors of photography may not want to do that, but some might encourage that. A lot of them probably nowadays encourage that. I certainly want an operator who will say, you know, I'll say, let's, you know, why don't you just try something right here and just, you know, just be close and wide. But, uh, as far in as the, as the other camera will let you and just get something interesting where where you can just slide across here and then, and see what they can come up with because you want to give them, especially someone who's really creative, you want to give them the freedom to make something. Everyone wants to contribute to the, to the process down to from camera operator to loader to lighting technician you want to be able to feel like okay yes i set that light and look what it did back there yeah (laughs) i i I, I did that i did that (laughs) (laughs) okay let's bring it back a little bit uh i want to talk about i want to talk about monster i want to talk about when we first met and getting out there and uh the process that like what that what that what happened in that movie like they originally had another crew like this this is uh, Monster 2002, uh, shot in 2002, uh, nominated. Uh, Charlize Theron won an Oscar that year uh, for Best Lead Actress. And um, and uh, it was a movie that was being shot in Florida um, by, and the director was Patty Jenkins. And um, originally the, the show had been running, but something happened where they let the original DP go. And then brought you guys uh, a whole team from LA. Yeah, the the uh, were you on the whole movie? No, I was. I was. I just came when you came in. I think that was that's practically you, my first day as in. well. Uh, when I I I was with Steve Bernstein on. We were shooting second unit on SWAT, big action movie. It was Thursday or Friday, I think. He came to me, he gave me a piece of paper with a phone number on it. And he said, call these people, make, make a deal. We're going to Florida start to start Monday. <laughs> Just <laughs> and, that fast. Yeah. And so we, we, I replaced myself on SWAT, went down there. Um, st- I think Steve flew down Saturday. I flew Sunday, something like that. We went, uh, I read the script on the plane. The script was amazing. It was, yeah, it was really lucid, really well, really well written, and 
and we went down there and I think we started shooting right away. I think it was that Monday or maybe Tuesday, we started shooting right away and scouting as we went and uh, really trying to figure out uh, how things were going and what, what it is we were getting into yeah. day by day. And it wasn't an easy shoot. It was a tough shoot. Uh, a lot of locations. It was uh, technically a low-budget film. It was, I think it was produced for under $5 million. I, th- I think it was six or seven. I think under six. I think that was, a, I think it was tier two. I, frankly, I can't remember, but I think it was $6 million. And Still, though, right there, you know, it's, um, the money goes fast. Um, and, they had some talented people out there. Man, some of those guys that I met out there are irreplaceable in in my career. Like just just um, supportive. Uh, Jack Neely, who is now a business agent for Local Six Hundred out of Louisiana, uh, as you mentioned before, Ace John Stoll is his name. He's now uh, he's now gripping in uh, Louisiana. Uh, I'm sure he's. I mean, besting maybe even King. I haven't spoke. I haven't caught up with him in a little while. You had Mike Walsh and uh, your close personal friend Eric Emerson, who was also there. Is that where you met Eric the first time? I imagine uh, that is where that is where we all met Eric. Yeah, who was turned out to be brilliant. In fact, he was he had packed his things up and he said, "I'm I'm moving to Los Angeles tomorrow." And I don't know who called him, but someone called him in and said, "Hey, do you want to work on this movie?" It's probably Bill Hill, the UPM. And do you want to work on this movie? He said. Okay, I guess I could take my stuff out of storage for, and he's, you know, we've done countless days together since then. Yeah, Eric's a great guy. I have uh, another positive influence in my career. Just, uh, you know, not always the 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 easiest. He's, you know, he's tough, and he he knows what he likes, and he's been doing it a long time. He's really good at it. So he'll 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 you know you you want um you want somebody to be you know. Uh, you want somebody to be easy on you? Well, you know, maybe the, you know, you know, if you're messing up, he's going to, he's going to tell you what you did wrong and how you did it, but he's also going to tell you how you, how you can do it better next time. And just, plus he's, he's a great focus puller. There is that too. He's, which is a really specific learned skill. Among all the new friends that you made, uh, there was also some blowback of what was going on with the LA crew coming in and, and you know, taking jobs from the local workers. Um, do you remember any of that? Well, <laughs> we don't have to get the, into the, the specifics. There was, well, in, from my perspective in my department, there was quite a bit of, I mean, there was instant camaraderie as far as I could tell. I mean, we had a great best boy and we had a great set of electricians and, uh, lighting technicians and, 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 Mike Walsh is a, was a great rigging gaffer. I mean, just, just yes. a brilliant guy who could do a lot of work. Yeah. Didn't require a lot of crew necessarily. And whatever great idea we had that was different from what was originally planned, yeah. he went with. I feel like the rigging crew for that was only three deep. It was Mike Walsh, John Bowen, and I want to say Humberto Rico. You remember Rico? <laughs> I think so. Rico yeah. was a, an electrician out of Florida who was a pro, a pro wrestler. Like he got a start on like Miami Vice and like, and somehow wanted to start his own wrestling federation. He, he, you know, he was a trip, um, I, but I haven't seen him again in a long time. But, but uh, I'll tell you something about Mike, Mike Walsh and how, you know, and how shifting the plan and how 
important it was that he was able to go with it and say, okay, we won't go with that plan. We'll go with this plan. One of my favorite scenes in that film is the scene in the roller rink. Oh yeah. And these, um, basically these two people who had the world against them, or at least felt like they had the world against them. They fall in love. And then they, and one of the things they do is they go to this roller skating rink and they just have the time of their lives, just roller skating. And the plan before we came in, the plan had been to light the scene with balloons, uh, with lighting balloons, with the helium and, uh, and, lamps inside if you're not familiar with the lighting balloon but basically the there were four or five of these on the on a lighting order and the ceiling in in this roller rink was coved it was a a beautiful old building and the way that the director wanted to shoot the scene all of the lighting would have ended up in the shot and so we, that was one of the locations we scouted on Saturday or we scouted after work one night and we went and looked at it and we said, and Steve and I looked at each other and we were like, this is just not going to work. We have to do something else. And what we came up with was we would build batten strips, we call them, with basically a 16-foot piece of wood with light bulbs screwed to them. So maybe 16 light bulbs on each. And we had maybe, you know, 20, 30, 40, I can't remember how many, but we basically covered the ceiling with these light bulbs. So you could photograph them and they would also light the scene and it worked out brilliantly. Building your practicals into the set. I think that's something that, uh, that deep directors of photography, cameramen, uh, directors, production designers, try and incorporate that into, try and incorporate practical lighting into your set either through a rigging crew, through your production design, but build it in there so there are sources of motivation. I think a lot of people get away from that, especially on, in low-budget filmmaking. It, I mean, this was not just, a so, not just a motivating source. It was the light source. That, we lit the scene with, with this, this beautiful top light, which the multiple single sources turned into one large soft source, which is always something I think is exceptionally beautiful to say to combine several directional lights 10 and in this case hundreds and it turns into this beautiful soft light and then we put a paper lantern or two on the camera and and that followed them around and that was that was the lighting for the scene but it was uh, on the dolly as Vidal was pushing it around. I, speci- I just had this image of, of, of Vidal Cohen, the key grip. Yeah, the key grip on roller skates. Yeah, on roller skates, it's, pushing the dolly on yeah. the roller ring. That's yeah. right, with the, with, the, with the china balls attached. Yeah, he's, uh, he's probably one of the most brilliant key grips I've ever known. He, and such a great personality of somebody that you, you say, oh, I'll take him anywhere. Vidal Cohen. Yeah, I haven't worked with him since, I don't think, but I know he knows just everybody in that circle. So, and he, so, so basically we had a, a really flexible rigging gaffer who was able to say, okay, I know you're going to abandon that, that effort. No problem. Let's go with this one. Yeah. And even though it was more work for him, he got on board with the idea because he saw it was the right thing to do. It made sense to him and he did it. And that's why he was able to come to Los Angeles and 
work on a number of big movies and do and re, and have a sort of successful career because he went with what we with the new idea and and made it work. Yeah, um being flexible to the idea at hand. The most important idea is the one that is in front of you, the one that's going to work. And this is going also goes back to, you know, assert your ideas and get it out there. But maybe if you push and you're not getting the results that you want, maybe maybe draw back. And, and it's about a lot. A whole a movie crew is 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 really about aligning everyone's vision to the same goal. And sometimes the director do, does that. Sometimes the producer does that. Sometimes the uh, sometimes it's it's the DP who is able to accomplish that. But once everyone's on board and sees the same in the same way. Then you then you you know that oh wardrobe should the only bright color they should put on people is red, right? Because okay we're making uh, six cents right. At that point maybe you say once everyone's aligned to the same idea you have wardrobe saying oh we'll only put red in the scene that's the only bright color anyone should wear because we're making the six cents and that is that is the clue that tells you who's alive and who's not. Right, getting everybody on board. Awesome. Before we stop talking about Monster, there was something I wanted to bring up. Um, I don't know if you realize this, uh, but this happened. Like, Monster was the one that locked me in. Like, Jack Neely said it to me best, because I had a great time on that show. I, I, had, a, I had an on-set girlfriend. It was my first movie. I had an on-set girlfriend. You know, um, you know, just like, like, I was getting my first big, my first big, you know, my first big show. Get to play with some people from out of town get to really, you know, express right. myself. You get to work with a, a director of photography with three letters after his name. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um, you know, um, the ride was great. The topic that I just want to touch on for just a minute is <clears throat> what happened to me after that show, because uh, it was a great ride, locked in. You know, Jack Neely says, you're a lifer because you're not leaving after, you know, you're not stopping now, you know. Um, my grandfather was going through, uh, some problems at the time and I didn't get up to see him. And, uh, I was fixed to go up to West Virginia immediately after we wrapped. But as it turned out, he died the day we wrapped. So it was one of those things. Uh, and, and this is 10 years later, you know, it's fine, but it's a life lesson that was learned. It was, you know, Family has to come first. You have to remember, you know, why you're doing this. You can't get away from, if you are so inclined to want to spend that time with your family, well, do it. Well, I think the the reality is that the business will always be there. Those, the, those opportunities, even though it may seem like this is my one shot, there'll be another one. That's exactly right. Those same people, they'll be there the next time when you're ready or maybe, or maybe they won't, but then it wasn't meant to be. The thing is what if you have, if you set your priorities and you say, whatever you want to do, do it now. Yeah. Don't wait, do it now. If you need to go see your grandfather, you go do it. Right. Right. If you need to, if you need to call your mom, you do it. If you need to call back the person who's, who's calling you for work and you can't get to the phone, do it right now. Just send them a text message. Do whatever it takes. Do it now. There is no later. 
And I think that's really important because you really get caught up in, oh, this is the business. It's my life. I have to be here. I have to be here for the movie. The movie will get made. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's that's one of the important topics that, you know, um, is about how to live your life, you know, how to how to cope. I went through a lot of depression after that because, you know, for natural reasons, you know, you, you, you know, I, my grandfather died and I wasn't there. Well, I have to cope with that. And I've since learned how to deal with it. But, you know, when you're young, still trying to figure it out and still trying to handle all this excitement and pressure, you know, and then try and manage your, your family responsibilities. It's, it's an interesting line to walk, especially when you have to walk it for your entire life. Like I was young enough to get into this business, to be able to learn how to deal with that early. You know, and I'm, I'm in a way I'm fortunate that I learned it, but what a messed up way to learn that, you know? So, um, I was just, and I think you already summed up what I was getting at, which was, you know, take care of your family, take care of the people that you love, be really good at your job and go do it, you know, but be active, be cognizant and don't miss out on these opportunities because they don't come around and yeah, they're not going to be around another time. It was, yes. I think especially with people at the end of their lives, like a, a grandparent, you want to prioritize that. Yes. It's very easy to forget. And it, and it's very easy to think, and I find this, you know, men, I find more um, inclined to do this. First, I want to do this, then I'll do this, then I'll do this. And really, you want to just try to do all those things at once. You say, okay, well, first I'll establish myself in my career, then I'll buy the house, then then we'll have kids. And well, what if that doesn't happen till you're 40 years old and your wife's not able to, to have children anymore? The Why not just do it all at once and take that risk? And I'm not saying be crazy about it, but take do the things that you want to do in the way that you feel like you can do them now. Right. Right. Well, you know, I'm just how that, how that went at the time. And I'm inclined to agree now because I've lived it, you know, um, bringing it full circle though. turns out, I don't know if you know this, but decoding Annie Parker was actually the last movie that I worked on as a camera assistant. <laughs> so a monster was the first with you. <laughs> Right. Decoding Annie Parker was the last with right. you. Yeah, exactly. Just wanted to let you know, in case you didn't get that memo, it was a, it was about about that time when I got burned out and having. I mean, we were working hard. There was a lot of going that on on that was show. Was it a hard movie? In and a lot I didn't of even, ways. I didn't even start it. I took over for Jessica. It was the loader for most of the show. The most amazing loader west of the Mississippi, I'd say. Uh, she's one of the best in the world, if you ask me. Uh, well, a few I, other people I'm, would agree with me too. I'm not taking I'm, her a lot more places than I've taken her. She would probably be too humble to agree, but uh, Jessica Ramos is definitely one of the best I've ever known. Decoding Annie Parker, great story. Another great story with substance that brings you and Steve together, only now instead of as a gaffer and DP, now you're shooting his movies that he is spending his hard-earned time to, to get off the ground. And I know that Steve spent many years, at least, I mean, it was two years when we did that thing, the play, Remember when he set right. up that yes. live show? Right. And that was two years prior. And, you know, and I, then I didn't see Steve until I came back to set. Yeah, he's, I have real imagination for my friend Steve Bernstein, who has really put everything he had into making this one movie because he believed in it and he believed in what it, what it was saying, what the subject matter and in the story. And, finally in himself to be able to say, I'm going to make this movie no matter what. Yeah. And did it. 
I, we we spoke to some gentlemen um, not too long ago uh, that basically had the same thing. Like I I have you know I have nothing but this script. This is what I need to work on. You know this is my this is my life's work, or this is all that I want to focus on. And they spent years slaving away, uh, pulling out every stop, trying to get their movie off the ground for next to no money. And they did it, and it's showing at um, Newport Beach Film Festival this weekend. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's. A lot of times, that's what it takes. Yeah, that if you, if you have a story, and he had no problem finding actors. Yeah, actors want to. They read that script and they said, "I want to say those words. I want to be there. I want to make this. I want to make this movie," and came up with a great cast. And a lot of a lot of other great stuff as well. I mean, not or just. I mean, you guys. You guys went to. Uh, let's talk about. Uh, I mean, you guys have finished, and you are now. It's now in its festival run and getting some, some screenplay action. Uh, well, it's, some, it's getting a theatrical release in I think twelve cities on uh, beginning of May, first weekend in May. Nice. Uh, where's it showing here in Los Angeles? Uh, it's going to show at the the Sundance Cinema, the one in Hollywood, and on. Uh, Sunset and Laurel. Cool. And and in Burbank. Okay, cool. Awesome. Which um, is fantastic. It's Tell us a little bit about the story. The it's the story of Decoding Annie Parker is the story of two women, both who have a different approach to what they see happening to women with breast cancer. And one is the scientist played by Helen Hunt, who's uh, Mary Claire King. And she believes in something that no one else believed at the time was that there was a genetic cause to cancer. And she was able to prove that. She's one of the, she's a hero of modern times, if you ask me, because she found something, she proved something. And she wasn't a scientist. She wasn't a researcher. No, this, this This is the researcher. But Annie Parker... Annie Parker was... By the way, Helen Hunt, I wasn't around for any of Helen Hunt's days, so I didn't see any of that story, that, that storyline. Sorry, go ahead, Ted. So Annie Parker is uh, was a, a woman who saw that her mother had breast cancer, her grandmother, her sister, that people in her family were dying of breast cancer, and she wanted to know why, and then she got it, and she said, she started working with her own doctors and said, well, there must be a reason. And she found another doctor who she found a doctor who, and a nurse and uh, one played by Corey Stoll, the other Rashida Jones and um, Annie Parker's played by Samantha Morton. And she just insisted that we have to find out why I need to know why there has to be a reason. And she, and she and Mary Claire King correspond and they're, uh, they both, when Mary Claire King discovers the breast cancer gene, when she proves it, that this is the case, um, it also validates Annie Parker's idea of how thing, how life works and that she was able to find that, come to the same conclusion without any training, just through faith. And then there's the B story with uh, Aaron Paul. Annie Parker is married to uh, her husband, Paul, who's played by Aaron Paul. 
And he turns out that he really does not believe in anything. And he's the one who, when he gets sick, he doesn't, I guess I'm giving a lot away here, but it's a, uh, when he gets sick, he does not believe in anything. He has no faith and, and his life ends. And Annie gets, it turns out that the real Ann Parker has had cancer three times and is, and is a survivor. Hmm. Actually, we'll have to check that. Cause I don't know if it's two or three. Fair enough. Um, uh, so you guys got in and you guys made, again, just pulling out a bunch of stops, just making it happen. Well, the way the film got made was it was originally supposed to be done in Canada. There was Canadian financing and there, which would have, led to Canadian tax incentives, but there was a, an, in the early tax incentive program in California, there was a lottery. So they applied, the company applied for tax incentives and won the lottery. So that made it inexpensive enough to film here in California. And in fact, we shot Los Angeles, Whittier specifically for Canada. Oh yeah. In kind of an ironic twist because a lot of films that are meant to be are meant to be take place in the United States have been shot in Canada and it, here we are shooting Can- Los Angeles for Canada. Was that the uh the old school that was closed down? That, that was a it was a, a reform school. Yeah. The, a, a school for boys. Yeah, that's in, a great location. In Whittier. And um so and it's uh, very low cost to shoot there. We had very few. Uh, it was v- <laughs> so. So we filmed in a in a abandoned state location in Whittier, and we shot the entire film there. There were uh, all s- sorts of locations. It must be five or ten acres. Good locations is, uh, can be can be tricky when you don't have a big budget. It, locations can be can be tricky, and just moving the company around is very difficult. And so we didn't have to do that. We didn't have to. We could decide. It was really like having a small studio where what we could change the schedule. We could say, okay, let's go shoot here. Let's shoot there. Let's shoot this scene tonight. Let's not shoot that scene because we had. We were dealing with three time periods and Annie in the movie gets sick twice. So she, and she goes through chemo and radiation. And so her appearance changes radically. And so this meant that the schedule was predicated on what costumes they needed to be in, what hair they needed to be in and what time period it was. Yeah. So it was, it was, very difficult logistically which meant that for me what it meant was that i just had to be ready to do anything edit at a moment's notice it's funny that's a common theme i feel like one of the first times i met you we were on our way to a location and i turned to you and i go what are we doing and you're like i don't know we're gonna figure it out when we get there and this was 10 years ago because <laughs> yeah. because the, the shoot was just so hectic that like if this was monster it was like so hectic that you know, you didn't know what was going to happen next. Like we're going over here and maybe he scouted it. Maybe he scouted it or seen something. Um, but most times you, you weren't able to see what was going to happen next. Cause, cause you weren't around for any of the pre-production. 
Um, but I remember sitting in the van, like, what, you know, what, the, what do you want me to do next? As we're on our way to the next location, of course, it's my first job. And, and <laughs> you look at me like, 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 what do you think we're going to do? We're going to figure it out. You know? <laughs> right. Well, in, in, in that case, when we get there, we're going to plug some lights in and turn them on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, silly white boy. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the reality is that these things are planned. I had a very specific plan for decoding Annie Parker. I had a very specific plan for what colors we would use when, what filtration, down to I had a spreadsheet and a and a plot and I would have the loader I would have Jessica or or Lewis keep that and I would say <laughs> okay what scene are we shooting okay let's look at look that up let's see what colors we should use on the lights let's see what filtration we should use yeah. let's see what focal lengths and what film stock down to everything it was planned but exactly where we were going to put the camera and what the actors were going to do, that we discovered on the day. I never, I never loaded for a movie that had so many notes on all the camera reports. Uh, and then furthermore, with the, the extension of the notes that, that went with <laughs> printed out to be delivered to the lab every night, which was fun and fine. Uh, very thorough. Well, we, very shot, thorough. we shot film and we shot two perf Super 35, which was for me in a way was fortunate because it meant that we had to go through a DI since there's no two perf gate for, uh, there's no way to print that directly onto 35 millimeter film stock. So we had to go through a DI, but you want, in my mind, you want to have the look that you want for the film in the daily. So if you can do that, Nowadays, you you might bake a lot into into the dailies. You might uh, digitally you can you have a lot more control on the set. Uh, but there, you develop the film, you send it to a timer, and they put they transfer the dailies to video, yeah, to files of. And so we had a very specific look that we wanted, and. We wanted the, and I, of course I couldn't be there. So we gave very elaborate notes to the timer. And I worked really closely with, with Tim, Tim Safrick, who was at Deluxe. And I just ran into him. I'm not sure where he is now, but he's, he's doing quite well. He's a DI colorist. We had, we had a person who had a, my still camera, my Canon still camera. And he would take, he would actually, he would shoot two pictures, one with a slate, one without a slate with the stand-ins and that way later I would go, uh, I did this on my iPad. I would just put, take his stills, collate them, color them on my iPad, email them to the dailies colorist along with the notes. And he would then pull them up on his monitor and then color the, the film to look similar to those notes. In fact, what I always said to him is I said, these are a suggestion. Please make it look better. <laughs> <laughs> well done. So they did something interesting with decoding Annie Parker's. What, one thing that they did was they partnered with charitable organizations and allowed those organizations to use the film to raise money through screenings. And so people would pay to for a seat at this special screening where maybe some of the filmmakers were there 
maybe some of the some uh, some people from the organization were, would be there, and they would just come together, screen the film, have that cathartic experience, and raise money for with for the cause. Yeah, and that's that's something I haven't seen before. Maybe I should look into that for. Um... Let's see. Can we uh, can we get wheels to get any traction? Because uh, with paraplegics, uh, the, you remember the film right, that you, I, yeah. exactly. You could. That's an. It's an interesting way to raise to, money for distribution. To, right. That people can use your film for social causes to raise awareness to uh, to raise aware. You can use if you can use the film to raise awareness for a social cause, especially if it's if it's about such a uh, interesting subject like cancer, paraplegics, uh, trauma survivors, anything like that. You can, you know, if you if you have something that you're passionate about, and that the you make a film where there's something that's passionate, where you're passionate about that subject, and you get people on board, you can build an audience that way. Ted, thank you so much for coming out and taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Lewis, for bringing me in. When you when I saw that, oh. Lewis started a podcast. I want to do that. <laughs> I want to be on it. It's it's tough, man. It's different. It's 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 melting his brain. I think he's sick of me already. But um, <laughs> but uh, but we're having it. We're having a good time, and uh, we're getting a lot of really valuable input from people just like yourself coming in here and doing it. So thank you. Thank you for coming by, sir. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Brian. I was quiet as a church mouse during the recording of this episode, which is going to make it the best episode we've ever done. <laughs> without any of my pedantic babbling in the background. It'll be the best episode that I was in. <laughs> the best you've ever done. The best podcast you ever did. Thanks for listening, everybody. We really appreciate it. We've had a great time today. Um, please take a minute to go check us, check us out on our website, www.cinematicimmunitycast.com. You can also check out our Facebook page, Cinematic Immunity. You can check us out on Twitter at Cinematic M Unity. You can also check us out at uh, Instagram um, and just about everywhere else. But if you just go to our site, uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can uh, uh, like us on Facebook, share us on Facebook. Any of that fun stuff goes a long way. So thanks, everybody, for listening. 